Today we discuss the state of unemployment in the United States. Politicians and the media talk constantly about the post-COVID economic recovery, but last week's jobs report suggests that workers are still in the midst of a crisis. Despite this dire situation, the unemployment relief programs passed at the onset of the pandemic have now expired. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have, again, Professor Richard Wolf join us for our regular segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's r-d-w-o-l-f-f.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us once again. Professor Wolf, in the last few weeks, we've been taking stories related to the economy, in other words, contemporary, relevant stories, but applying basic Marxist ideas and concepts to these stories. So it's been, in a way, a Marxism 101 course with you for the past weeks. This week, not that we want to depart from that perspective, that's the perspective we embrace, but there are specific new stories out and information related to the economy as the Delta variant of COVID-19 rampages through big parts of the country where students are coming back to school, students are getting sick, students are being quarantined. Big parts of the economy that were thought to be in a stage of recovery may not be in a recovery. I was speaking last week, oddly, because I never talk about these kind of things, to someone who was involved in investing. He was a day trader, you know, investing in Wall Street. And he said, you know, tomorrow's jobs report is going to be very significant because if the jobs report comes in as expected with somewhere between 720,000 new jobs added in the last month up to as many as 800,000 jobs, it will be a sign that the Federal Reserve will begin tapering, as they call it, away from quantitative easing, meaning pumping so much money into the economy that there will be the danger of an overheated economy and inflation running rampant. 
and there may be a tapering, in which case that will cause a correction, what's called a correction, which is euphemistic for a big drop in the stock market. And at the bottom of that big drop in the stock market, it might be a very opportune time to begin buying stocks because stocks will be at a lower price. Now, it turned out the next day, this jobs report came out and it wasn't 720,000 new jobs. It wasn't 800,000 new jobs. It was down by 75% from those estimates. It was about 235,000 new jobs. And this, Professor Wolf, with the economy already living, as you've put it, on life support from the Federal Reserve, the central bank, and the government. Anyway, when we look at these numbers, what does it suggest to you? Well, it suggests to me something which we see very often in capitalism. It is an extremely unstable system. And that's the real message here. We don't know, and I'm talking about we, the public, but also we, the economics profession, of which I've been a part all my life. We don't know, literally, from one month to the next, what's going to happen. What we do know is that that's the reality, that this is an unstable system, and it has always been that way. The amazing thing is the ability of the mass media to deal with each of these recurring crashes, followed by a boom that then has the bottom fall out of it, followed by an anxiety-ridden crash, then another boom. Each time we're supposed to be given specific reasons, something just now that caused the downturn. And likewise, we're told, oh, goody, after a few months, we're in a recovery, which always, and let me stress this, always these recoveries end up punctuated by disappointments, like the numbers for unemployment that you quoted at the beginning of the program. But even beyond the disappointments, this upturn, if it returns, will eventuate in a downturn. Look at all the words we have in our language. Crash, recession, depression, boom and bust, downturn, catastrophe, economic crisis. I mean, I could go on. The reason we have so many names is because this is a fundamentally unstable system. In my classes that I teach at this point in the lecture, I stop because, you know, students need a little humor, especially when the topic is a bit depressing. And I say something like this. If you lived with a roommate as unstable as capitalism, you would have moved out long ago. This is craziness, these kinds of ups and downs. And they have been with capitalism throughout the last 350 years, in other words, throughout modern capitalism's history. Anywhere you go in the world where capitalism has settled in to become the dominant system, Asia, Africa, Latin America, North America, Europe, you name it, we see this same instability. The system has tried everything for all those 350 years. 
the smartest of its people put to work, do something, do anything to get us out of this instability. And the reason to try to do that was because capitalists understood that this was an absolutely terrifying flaw in the system, failure in the system. And they knew that unemployed people would be the first ones to question a system that throws them out of work in such a regular way. And so it's been urgently important for capitalist societies to come up with a way to stop, to overcome the instability. And yet, 350 years into this system, they've never been able to do that. That's why we are in a recovery, in quotation marks now, from the last catastrophe crash, which happened in 2020 and the first half of 2021. That is, we're literally still in it. And we all remember a few years before that, 2008 and 9, when we had another one. And then if you go back a little more to the year 2000, well, we had what we then called the dot-com crisis, which threw millions of people out of work. I mean, it is a terrible, terrible burden of capitalism to be this unstable. And I want to drive that home, that there's nothing unique about the disappointing numbers of last month. Typically, the up and down cycle of capitalism, oh, by the way, if you can't stand words like crash and crisis, the more polite term is the business cycle. That makes it sound almost normal or neutral or acceptable. But of course, it isn't. So let me talk a little bit about that, if I may. It's a waste. It's a waste of human labor. Unemployment means that a human being who is an adult, who has an education, more or less, who has skills, more or less, is unable to contribute to the society his or her productivity his or her ability to help make things better by producing more or better goods and services. Unemployment is a waste of the human beings, but it is, of course, worse than that. Because human beings who are unemployed are people who feel bad about themselves. They are not contributing. They are not working. They are not part of the community whose majority is at work each day. So they lose self-esteem. They look for escapes from their troubled situation. We know from statistical studies for decades that the more you're unemployed, the more likely you are to have problems with physical and mental health, with alcoholism and other kinds of addictions, and on and on. But of course, if you haven't got people working, you likely also don't have tools, equipment, and the raw materials in our society that those unemployed people could be working with. Those are sitting idle too. 
And let me draw your attention to the fact that the Federal Reserve in the United States keeps a statistic that helps us quantify what I just said. It's called capacity utilization. It's a measure of what proportion of the tools, equipment, machines, factories, office space, store space is sitting idle, gathering rust and dust, rather than being put to work with the people who need the jobs, the unemployed. Well, right now, as I'm speaking to you, the Federal Reserve capacity utilization number is 76%. You know what that means? It means fully one quarter of the tools, equipment, and raw materials needed to go into production are sitting there doing nothing, literally gathering rust and dust. So let me summarize. We have millions of people, millions, we're talking at least 10 to 20 million people if you do the numbers correctly. We have millions of people unemployed who want a job and are looking for one. We have all the tools, equipment, and raw materials we could ever need to give those people the capacity to be as productive as all of them have in their minds and bodies to be. And Lord knows, you and I both know that there's plenty of work to be done the greening of the United States, the Green New Deal, the infrastructure all our politicians are talking about, the taking care of the elderly who are becoming a bigger part of our population, the provision of quality daycare so that young families have the support they need to develop their full productivity. There's lots of work to be done. But our capitalist economic system is a big, fat failure. It can't put together the people who want the work, the unemployed, with the equipment, tools and equipment sitting there, the capacity we're not utilizing to serve the social needs that we all have. If ever you needed a documentary proof of capitalism's inadequacy, it's this spectacle that comes to mind when we face unemployment numbers honestly. So Richard, I want to pursue the topic that you're introducing here. The one element of unemployment, unemployment is bad for individuals. It leads to additional poverty. It has all of these attendant miseries that go with unemployment. But the other part of the equation is the wastefulness for society in an aggregate way of having so many people who are idle rather than being, quote, productive. And it made me think about a couple things as you were talking. When I was growing up, we always learned that the Soviet Union, the evil empire, as Ronald Reagan called it, was not only a gray totalitarian nightmare, but it was a very, you know, non-productive economy because with a full employment economy and without the ability of a small percentage of the population able to get very, very rich by being owners, the incentive to either get rich or the incentive to work hard disappeared. 
And as a consequence, we were told, I was always told as a kid, you know, the Soviet Union is, in addition to all of its other defects, it's just not that productive. It's not like the economic miracle of capitalism. Then as I became older and became politically involved and did independent reading, I was struck by the fact that the Soviet Union, once it started introducing five-year plans with public ownership of the means of production, and I'm not saying all of this to say this is the model, that's not my point, but between 1928 with the first five-year plan and actually the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, with the exception of the first years of the German slash Nazi invasion at the beginning of World War II, the Soviet economic system, a full employment system, avoided any recessions. If you look at the economic charts, there's steady growth. Some of the growth periods are exponential during, say, the industrialization period of the 1930s. By the 1980s, there's a slowing of economic growth that's considered the period of stagnation in the Soviet Union. But even there, there were still positive growth rates. Now, maybe the statistics were cooked a little bit. I don't know. But the Soviet Union or Russia was one-twelfth the size of the U.S. economy in 1917 when the revolution happened. And by the 1970s, it was the second largest economy in the world. And one of the issues that really jumps out at you is when you avoid unemployment, even if you have, say, less incentive for this or that part of the population, not driven by the lash of unemployment, for instance, or the lash of homelessness, if certain things are guaranteed to you as an individual in society, just not having the curse of unemployment gives the economy in an aggregate way so much more additional woman power and manpower that in many ways, in addition to planning and not having advertising and not having intellectual property rights, the other things that would in many ways retard productivity, Russia or the Soviet Union, which was much, much, much poorer than any of the Western countries in 1917, made remarkable progress. Again, my point is it's a different economic model. It's not driven by profit and it doesn't have boom-bust cycles or the business cycle. Anyway, a profound difference. And I'm thinking about China too, which has a lot of capitalist methods, many more than the Soviet Union had. But I noticed last week an article in the Wall Street Journal, in China today, a new museum opens every two days. There's a new subway stop that opens every four days. The idea of planning and the idea of public ownership and direction also there leading to very consequential impacts. Yeah, I mean, for me, it follows directly from what I said, your observations, apropos, very much so. They figured out by having the state take over as much as it did in both Russia and China, although you're quite right, China has allowed much more private capitalism than the Soviet Union did, and much more foreign private capitalism than the Soviet Union ever did, although that was not just the decision of the Soviet Union. The West was not as eager to get into Russia for all kinds of reasons as it was and has been and continues to be eager to tap into China's growth. But yeah, there's the proof when the government gets involved in a major way 
in both cases led by a communist party, they are able to not only achieve spectacular rates of growth. I mean, I'm constantly in the position, and I'm not endorsing the Soviet Union as a model or China as a model and not saying they don't have all kinds of problems. They do, all societies do, they have their share. But they do not have the instability of capitalism. They do not have the unemployment problem of capitalism. The irony is capitalists, when they talk about efficiency, really mean the efficiency inside the enterprise. There, they're saving every penny and you know avoiding the spending of a nickel. They don't have to. They're terribly efficient inside the enterprise. But that is all lost on the society if next to the efficiency inside enterprise, you have millions of unemployed people standing across the street from the enterprise, twiddling their thumbs during the day because there's no work for them. So it's bizarre, this claim of efficiency of capitalism, when both the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China have much outgrown much faster rates of growth than the United States or Western Europe or Japan for most of the modern period of the last hundred years. So I always find it bizarre, these claims that capitalism is efficient in the face of the grotesque, wasted inefficiency of unemployment and unutilized capacity. But there are horrible consequences of all of this that go way beyond economic efficiency, the terrible personal suffering of the unemployed. Let me show you how it interacts with something your audience is particularly interested in, I assume, and most Americans should be. And that's the problem of racism. Let me explain. Because capitalism is unstable, because it has these cycles And by the way, the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is a governmental agency here in the United States, keeps track. And their history of capitalism, by the way, they absolutely love capitalism as an institution, but they study how often they happen. On average, every four to seven years. That's an average. So sometimes it takes longer, sometimes shorter. But at the average, every four to seven years, a capitalism, any capitalism, every capitalism, has its downturn, its cycle, its boom-bust alteration. Okay, a society like that is not going to last very long. You know why? Because everybody who's a worker, everybody who's a worker is facing the risk that in the next four to seven years, your job is going to disappear because every four to seven years, there's a downturn. And that means millions of people in global capitalism lose their job, not because they aren't working hard, not because what they do isn't valuable, but because the system crashes. Every worker, right, has a working life. Let's assume most workers enter the labor force at just, let's say, 25 years of age, and they retire when they're 65. I mean, it's actually longer than that. But there we have those 40 years. During those 40 years, you're going to have anywhere from 6 to 12 crashes. And the crashes threaten you as a worker. Because if you lose your job, you may not be able to make the payments on your home. 
the last couple of crashes in this country, millions of people lost their homes, disorienting their families, disrupting the educations of their children, all the rest of it. Not only will you lose your home, but you may not be able to make your car payments. You may not be able to enable your child to get an education if it's at the college level. In other words, you threaten everybody, and the mass of the working class threatened with this irrational four to seven year catastrophe waiting for them would long ago have gotten rid of a system that threatens them like that. So the capitalist system everywhere realized it had to fix this problem right away. It had to be able, I'm going to use the United States in terms of how it did it, it had to be able to tell the mass of people, working class people, don't worry, the system is unstable, but it won't get you. Why? Because we've arranged in our society to make a separate minority be the people who get really whacked by the business cycle. And the United States, you know, and I know who those people are. We call them black or African-American. You can add, if you like, Hispanics and women, because they were also put in this position. Colloquially, in everyday language, these were called the people who were the last hired and the first fired. You know what that means? When the economy is going up, they get pulled in and they get a job. And when the economy is going down, they get kicked out of their job. Their lives become even more unstable, even more disrupted than everybody else's because they're made to absorb all of the instability to save the majority from having to worry about it as they otherwise would have. Much of the suffering and the special diminished circumstances, jobs, incomes, education, housing, you name it, of the African-American community is because they were assigned in this system the role of shock absorber. And what was the shock? The business cycle. As it went up and down, it impacted them wildly disproportionately relative to the whites. Racism not only allowed the problems of capitalist instability to enable the system to survive despite those problems, but it was able to enforce this by blaming the black people, the African-Americans, for what was happening to them rather than the system having to do it to somebody and the American culture allowing that tolerating it to be imposed on a minority. It is a wonderful example of how the failure of capitalism to cope with its own instability was a major contributor, not the only one, but a major contributor to the institutionalized racism of the society. Richard, final point, and that's an excellent, excellent description 
of the function of, or one of the functions of racism and white supremacy. And we can see from the get-go, from the first settler colony that was established where the crown in Europe, in England or elsewhere, was giving land in North America to certain colonizers, that the indentured white servants, the African enslaved people, the indigenous people who were the target of land grabs, the majority, in other words, could have all united against the tiny few, even at that point, who were making profits off of land speculation or land grabbing or slavery or the employment of indentured servants or in other indentured labor. Racism and the hierarchy of racism was a key component. Otherwise, those early nascent bourgeois, nascent capitalist settlements would have easily been torn apart by that kind of insurrectionary or civil war force. So I think it's really important, and I maybe we can come back at another time to further examine this. It's a huge topic, and it's in many ways still the dominant topic in American politics. But because we're short on time, I want to end with this last point and get your comments. Labor Day is, of course, as we said on our show yesterday, the first Monday of September every year for the United States. Everywhere else in the world, Labor Day is May Day. And even though May Day has its roots in the United States, in Chicago, in the struggle for the eight-hour day by a movement that was attacked by the police whose leaders were mercilessly executed, which caused a great setback to the U.S. labor movement in the 1880s, even though you know, May Day is Labor Day in the United States. Labor Day is something different, the September date, not the May date. But on this Labor Day, the gift given by the government to the U.S. working class was to cut off unemployment insurance benefits. There were three pandemic era unemployment benefit programs that were established in March 2020 from the CARES Act by Congress signed by Trump all of them expired on September 6th. The March 2020 CARES Act established these three federal programs. One was called Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, or PUA, which covers those traditionally not eligible for unemployment insurance or other aid, like Uber drivers or Lyft drivers, people who worked as independent contractors. Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Compensation, or PEUC, which extends aid to those whose limited state benefits had expired. And then there was, of course, the Federal Pandemic Unemployment Compensation, or FPUC, a weekly boost of as much as $300 a week to supplement unemployment. All of that ended on Labor Day. What an irony. And here you have COVID rampaging. This is a system, in addition to its cruelty, it's barbaric cruelty towards individuals. It's a system that clearly, obviously, makes no sense. The bizarre character of cutting these programs when the economy is, in fact, recontracting and when the virus is surging makes no sense. Again, a bizarre failure of capitalism. Anyway, in getting your last comment, I want you to just you know, address this like exacerbated character of the crisis intentionally by the government. Be glad to. There's a number of ways to get at it. I'm going to get at it quickly through the situation of immigrants. This is not the whole story, but it's 
an example of what this story really tells you. Under Obama, worse under Trump, and now worse even than that under Biden, we have forced out of the United States millions of undocumented immigrants, and we have denied entry to millions of other undocumented immigrants. These were the people who did the worst work in our society for the lowest pay under the worst conditions. Often employers didn't even pay them because they knew the undocumented worker wouldn't dare go complain to the government for fear of getting in trouble about their undocumented status. Those people aren't available anymore. And here's the problem. That's what all the noise about labor shortage is about. We don't have, we capitalist employers, the lovely availability of millions of undocumented immigrants whom we can rip off in a way we cannot a regular Native American citizen. We can't. And now we're bitter because we can't. We kicked them out. We kept them out. And now we don't have people to work like that. And we need them. Americans won't do it. They won't work under those conditions. So we have to force them. And that's what this is about. You're taking away the government support given because of the pandemic and the economic crash. You're taking away the extra $300, the money for the independent contractors, everything you just took us through. And there's nothing mysterious about it. It's an attempt to say, we're not going to help you anymore. We don't care how desperate you are. We're going to give you only one way to get enough money to live. And that's to accept the jobs and the conditions we used to impose on undocumented immigrants, but they're not available in the numbers we once had. So it's your next. That's what this system, and the fact that it's on Labor Day doesn't slow them down a step. The irony, the symbolism, the horror of what you're doing, all of that's secondary. The Chamber of Commerce has to have exploited workers. Look, we know that. That's why for the last 40 years, capitalists have gone to China, India, Brazil, wherever else they can get cheap labor. They gave up jobs that Americans had had for a long time to make more money. You think they're going to hold back from forcing those who are the least well off, the people who depend on these governmental handouts during the worst crisis, probably in this country's history, this combination of a public health pandemic and an economic capitalist crash. So instead of giving extra, you're taking away the little bit of support you added. Shame is the only emotion any of this warrants. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to go and check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow in a special episode on the 50th anniversary of the Attica Prison Rebellion. We'll see you tomorrow. 
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.